into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out to sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully to the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But, it immediately, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The Lord, thank you for that reading. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Emily today. For they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. This is the way that the story that Kendall read for us this morning ended. Um, I think my, Don, do you mind turning my mic down a little bit? Sometimes it's so loud in my head, I, I can't. I, I'm listening to myself more than I'm listening to what I'm thinking about what I'm saying. Uh, thanks, Don. Um, so we have two sort of miracles to consider today in this journey through Mark. The season that we're in, I don't know if I quite ever explained it, is, is the season called Epiphany. And it's the season of, of sort of celebrating these epiphanies, these revealings, these way in which Christ is shown forth for us. And this season always starts um, with the baptism of Jesus, which is uh, an event that's contained in all three Gospels and alluded to in the fourth. And the season always ends with the transfiguration of Jesus before Ash Wednesday. And so let's see, we have next Sunday uh, is the 20th. Is that right? Doesn't matter. Um, and then that, then we'll have Transfiguration and then Ash Wednesday. Um, and so that's sort of the way it goes. And so you have these two bookends, these two revealings. In both those instances, Christ is proclaimed from heaven that this is my son whom I love. Uh, one gospel has listened to him added at the end. But those things sort of bookend these things. But in the middle, generally you would be hearing things that are revelatory about who Jesus is. And so often missing in these passages um, are take up your cross and follow me, or um, predictions of his passion, or those type of things, because they're, what they're meant to do is to sort of shine forth how Christ, Christ is being revealed as the one in the midst of his ministry. Um, and so this season in Mark's gospel is particularly helpfully divided along those lines. Um, we've, we've looked at this before, but this sort of division here is that, you know, it's the baptism at the beginning, the uh, transfiguration, the mountain, and then he sort of sets his face and goes towards Jerusalem. And that's where conflict arises more, um, where you see him predicting his passion, I think, three times in this gospel. And he sort of lays out on that direction and on that path. And then the first half, he's got this ministry sort of about that place, going back and forth. But the point is today with these two miracles is that they're very insider-oriented miracles. They're for the disciples. 
Often his miracles are healing people on the outside or casting demons and the crowds wonder who he is. But for the most part, there's no um, recognition among the people at the feeding of the 5,000 that this miraculous thing has happened. It happens amongst the disciples with Jesus. It doesn't happen um, publicly so that everyone has uh, seen it. The one on the boat, only the disciples are present. Uh, the walking on water. So these are these insider ones. And part of the reason, part of what that should raise for us is questioning why for the church these are miracles for us. Why for those on the inside, these are things that are sort of particularly placed, not so that they're there amongst everyone, but for the people who have, have sort of been invited to the inside. For Jesus, as he said earlier, is to, to these have been given the secrets of the kingdom. And even then, though, we have this, that, that line at the end, that they were still confused about the bread after the walking on the sea and that their hearts were hardened. This has got this complex sort of nature to it. Somebody, um, a commentator who I like, called them um, non-therapeutic miracles. And I think what he meant is that they're, they're not like restoration of, of walking or sight or something like that. But what I think he, he missed in titling that is, is therapy for us in the modern world, has a fair amount to do with um, the healing of our souls or being able to perceive in a different way, of being able to, to sort of um, come out of it if, if therapy is done properly, which we can get into my opinions on that some other time, but, <laughs> um, but to come out of it with, with a healed vision about where we were um, or an understanding that, that sort of sets us in a different plane so that we no longer um, see ourselves entirely the way we were when we walked in. And so in that way, these, these I think, are, are therapeutic uh, miracles for the disciples. For it's going to give them a way to see on the other side. Now, the, the feeding of 5,000, the early church must have been very interested in this miracle because it's one of the only things that's contained in all four Gospels. Um, outside of the cross and resurrection. This is, this is very particular that this one is in there, and it's in there in, in, in the three synoptic, uh, similar ones, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in a very similar form. John, um, it has a different tone, but there's this notion that's the 5,000, and it's in all four, and it's sort of done over and over again and told over and over again. It's restored in art. Um, in the early church period, you see it a lot, and there's something that happened in this, that they cherished that I think we don't see as much. Uh, there's perhaps a little bit of embarrassment about these two stories, I think, in our modern scientific world, too. Um, the, the common interpretation, which I heard at way too young of an age for something this vulgar, I'm kidding, um, was that Jesus brings forth the disciples' food and begins to share it, and all the people listening are so touched that they share the food that they have. Um, uh, not an old interpretation, comes about in the 1900s, around the time that we become very scientific as well, and uh, um, wouldn't mean that much if that were the case. The moral of the story would be share more, not the revelation of Christ is present among you. I mean, I don't think, here, there's nothing against sharing, um, but there's something else that the early church, you would, you would just record that as, as sort of a moralism. There's something to the story that they thought about a lot, that they kept coming back to. 
that they shared amongst themselves in a way that wasn't as simple as like, you know, Jesus taught us to share, so you should share too. Um, that would not be the way in which the story was told and, and received in, those con- uh, in that context. Um, and so we have these two stories we're going to sort of look at today. Um, I'm trying to think where... There's, there's, as we go through these passages, there's a lot of forward and backwards going on. So, so when you see Jesus do some of the stuff, it's back to Moses, it's back to Elijah. Then there's the ways in which it's foreshadowing his last supper, in which he will take bread, lift it up, and bless it again. And then there's a way in which it's forwardly looking towards that eschatological, the last times, the end times, uh, last banquet in which all people will be gathered to eat together and the Lord will eat with them. And then there's another way in which it's looking back towards language in the Psalms and other stories in the Old Testament. And so the story is always kind of leaping back and forth, back and forth in the ways and images in which Christ is present in them in a different way. And that's true in both these instances. I mean, the most easiest one is to say that these are a people on a new exodus who are fed the same way that the Israelites were fed in the wilderness, but not miraculously from heaven, but from God who is intimately with them and present with them. And as they are on this new exodus, um, they, instead of needing the waters to be parted, they meet one who walks on the waters who is God. Um, and that's just one way you can read forward and backwards into this. This image, which I've used, I haven't used for a long time, but is helpful to think about with this, is that these are all the cross-references somebody put together of the Bible. And so you look, you know, Revelation is at the end, Genesis is at the beginning, and each of the lines is sort of different references to other parts of the Bible. So the Bible, this story is a good example, or these two stories are a good example of these lines being cast out to all different parts of the text and of the story and of the Bible. is, is and, and oftentimes, if you look at this really closely in the way that the arcs go, it's almost like you're never really reading one story. You're always reading expansively into it. This is... Uh, um, Jeremy gave me a hard time about when I was angry about digital Bibles the other day. But it's, it's part of it, you know, with the digital Bible, you can just see the text you want, and then you can proof text that and have an argument with somebody else about it. Now, a physical Bible does not entirely prevent that, but at least you're holding something that's attached to the rest of it. So in that argument, at least in the weight of what you're holding— is more than just the one text snapshotted on your screen so that nobody can see anything else. And on top of that, it has the benefit of hand me that and we can pull in another text and discuss this, whereas people don't hand off their phones very easily. Um, very protective of those. Um, so you, you've got that, uh, that wasn't supposed to be in here, but I'm always going to be pounding the, the drum on. Um, it was, Kelly remembers this time when a they had Jehovah's Witness, yeah, and she had an iPad, and I was like, we'll pull up the Greek because they have the Greek on there, and I wanted to point to something, and she's like, don't touch my, even the missionaries are not kind about their technology. <laughs> they were very mad, um, uh, and then they never came back. Um, uh, so that was a fun tangent. Um, so let's look at the Feast of 5000 to start with. Um, um, this is uh, one sort of image of it that, that you can find. Um, and um, the first thing to note about this scene is this contrast with Herod's feast. 
In the scene right before this, Herod has all his friends over, and the reference of what the food is served at Herod's feast, the only reference is towards the head of John the Baptist. And what we see in the contrasting of the two stories is that tyrants, or because I'm from Illinois, politicians, (laughs) live in fear. And they want control. And even their meals, if you read the one previous to this in, in John, uh, Mark 6, are meals that are, are built in anxiety about their power and about where they are and about how they have control and how they lose control. Herod's banquet, which, I mean, dinner invitation-wise, you know, bread and fish in a field or at the palace with all the other trappings, should be a time of great rejoicing, and yet it's just a time of paranoia and fear. It should be a time in which they are comforted. And this, this is one, in, in, in Jesus' feeding, he looks on the people with compassion and sees them as, as sheep without a shepherd, whereas Herod, is, I think, would like to see himself as their shepherd. And yet he has to play political and power games at his own meals. Um, there's, there's a, I often think, you know, I, I try to, th- to think of the ways in which this, the scripture encounters us in our lives and, and can affect us. And I often pick common enemies, but, but one of the ones I, I often missed is this notion of scarcity versus abundance. That, that Herod's table is, is set in an economy of scarcity and an, an economy of fear, an economy of, in which you have to defend everything. Whereas Jesus' table did not have a lot but because he is present there and because he has the um, vision of abundance within it, the food is miraculously multiplied. And so this story, even in itself, doesn't take place in sort of a vacuum, but takes place in this contrast between neurotic, powerful figures um, who, who only seek control and between the incarnate Lord who, who sees in his field something different. And so the the story starts after John the Baptist is beheaded. And the disciples come to him and tell him all that they're doing. And Jesus' intention is to go to a quiet place and get some rest. But as they go, the people follow them. And they're running after him. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That it, in the Greek it says his heart goes out to him in some ways. There's, there's, he sees these people, and what's amazing about this is so he begins to teach them. Oftentimes, we think of compassion only as the, the feeding, the doing, the this. But for Jesus, there's this notion in which the compassion first leads to a teaching to them. He begins to teach them about this kingdom. He begins to, to respond to them. Now, there's, there's another way, too, in which he's, he's this shepherd for them. Now, oftentimes, pastors will talk about how dumb sheep are and not think the congregants will do the math and go, he's talking about us. Um, but there's, there's a, not a way in which that is, I think, entirely fair because um, I only have a relationship with one animal, which is my dog. Um, but as I was reading... Um, uh, this week, somebody pointed out that, that shepherds know what's wrong with them, and so that their, their neuroticness or their anger or their anxiety is coming from something else, and can see that, not disregard it, but then attend to it. And so we live anxious, neurotic lives, 
we live addicted lives, and a shepherd would be able to see why that is. And so if you think of a dog on 4th of July, thinks they're going to die because of the fireworks. But as the one who knows better than that, you're able to attend to that in a different way. We think we're going to die all the time and that we need to surround ourselves with more and more and that we uh, need to self-medicate our way through lives and deal with our addictions. And we have one who is stronger, who sees what's really going on. So Christ as our shepherd is more than just one who tends to the flock, but is one who's able to see where the sources of the function and anxiety truly are. It's hard because I don't think we intuitively want to trust that. We, like the disciples, and this is not an effort to throw them under the bus, but they say, hey, it's getting late, and so shouldn't the people go into the surrounding countryside to buy themselves something to eat? Jesus responds to them, you give them something to eat. They said that would take more than half a year's wages, which is an interesting translation. It's, it's 200 denarii, I think is what they say, which is a day's wages, but you don't work every day. So it's almost a year's wages. Um, are we going to spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus asks, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they find, they have five fish or five loaves and two fish. Um, and this is the ways in which they sort of come to him with these scarce things. They don't have a lot. Now, it's interesting, the disciples' first thing is they're noticed that it's getting late. Um, and they have some sort of element of thinking about the people. Um, it's getting late. These people are going to need to eat. You should send them off to get some food. Um, Christ sees that they need to have their imaginations expanded about what's happening here in the countryside. And so this a miracle sort of transfixes in that place. But there's... Um, there's a way in which they see the limits, too. You know, it would take more than a year's wages. Um, and they have five loaves and two fish. Now, I'm, um, I love the early church's translation of these things. And so they very clearly, when they say they have five loaves and Jesus is acting like a new Moses, that, that the five loaves represent the five first books of the Old Testament called the Torah. Um, now, there's... Two things going on there. One is Mark artistically telling a true story with interpretive elements that we can apply to it, like that. They, there might have been six, there might have been four, but Mark wants to make it five so that we think of Jesus as the Torah. Or there was five, or this is all just artistically rendered and, and Mark didn't have the details. To, I mean, there's, there's lots of ways you can do it, but I think that, that we read scripture too flat sometimes. Um, and so the idea that th this represents something more expansive in the story, I think, is a good thing. The two fish are even more interesting because there, there's early church interpretation that they are the, the Leviathan and the Behemoth, these great beasts that God has slayed, preparing for this last time feast. Um, there's another way in which they're the law and the prophets. That's the common. Whenever there's two, it's the law and the prophets, law and the prophets. Um, and that Christ uses them skillfully in his hands to provide our, our healing. Um, these, these sort of numbers, I hope, mean something to us. Um, they expand, again, going back to that graph, they expand the, the, the story more than they shrink it. What more is going on here? 
The 12 at the end, just in case I forget, represent the, the reconstituted Israel. There are 12 baskets of these people who have been reconstituted again. Um, but this is, this is uh, I find this interesting, and I think what it, it, what it teaches us is to see that we are more than just um, bodies when we look at this. This is teaching us something for our souls as well as it is teaching us something for our bodies. And I talked about souls last week. This is, uh, there's a, the philosopher uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein said that the clearest picture we have of a soul is a body. Um, and I think that's helpful to keep in mind. When, it, when we use the language of souls at, here at Defiance Church, we're not trying to tear us from our bodily existence. The clearest picture of what you want to know what a soul looks like is to look at a body, is what he was saying. And I think that there's, there's a way in which these are enmeshed in us. Um, it's not like you can separate one from the other. Um, but I think we intuitively know there's something different when we think of our souls. And so Jesus here, in this contrast with Herod's feast, it's, it's been described at least three times. They go to a remote place. They go to a desolate place. What do the disciples say when it's getting late? It's remote. That what they've described so far in the words that they use is that this is a desert, anxious place. But when the miracle starts to turn, and this is true of the ancient Near East of these desert places, so this is not maybe part of the miracle, but it's, he instructs them to sit down in green grass. So far, this place has been remote, desolate, solitary. And as Jesus prepares to feed them, they're instructed to sit in green grass. And they're organized into groups, and there's this way in which that, that configured the way that the um, Israelites were camped around the tabernacle in the wilderness. Um, there's a military way you could look at it too. Um, they're, but they're this, they're this pilgrim people put into these groups, and they kind of have this way in which they um, are even seated in the way that you would celebrate Passover, similar language for the, for the size of the group and why this is. Um, and so they're invited to sit in, these green, in this green grass, and they sat in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. This is um, similar to the language that Jesus often uses, or the gospel writers often use when Jesus has bread. He takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and then in the Eucharistic scenes, the communion scenes, he gives it. Um, and taken, blessed, broken, given, I think are four words that are worth thinking about often in the Christian and the disciples' life. How is the church a people who have been taken and rescued out of the world? How are they people who have been blessed by God in their baptisms and being named for them? How are they not left in just blessedness to leave the world alone, but broken in some ways? And then how are they given out for the life of the world? Um, take it, blast, broken, and given. It's it's way you can think of yourself. It's the way you can think of the church. It's a way in which we can expand our imaginations in what's going on in these scenes. Um, Jesus takes it. He blesses it. He gives thanks for it, and he breaks the loaves, and he gives them to the disciples to distribute. Again, this is a very insider one, but what I love about this image is we talk about Defiance Church being a witness to the reign of God. Um, if you wanted to use it in this passage, we are waiters to the reign of God. We are not the miraculous ourselves. We are not the one who has these great powers within. But as we come to him and bring him what we have, which in this passage is not much, five loaves, two fish, 
He is able to transform that, and we get to serve that out into the world. But we are not the element of it. And so I prefer witness because waiter only works for this story, although it's in all four Gospels. But they're, they're sort of the waiters of what Christ has done. And the, and the image, as we've talked about often, almost every time when Christ is even invited to a meal, the way he enacts himself is at the meal is as the host. Like even when it's in somebody else's house, if you were reading it from the perspective of the ancient Near East, even in our own language, it looks like He's throwing the party even though somebody else provided the venue, the food, and everything else. He's, he's got this way of becoming the host. And here, again, as the one who blesses and enacts and sort of instructs his disciples to give it out, he too is the host there. He's the one giving that out into the world. The people are filled and satisfied. It's a reference to a Deuteronomy um, 8 um, that when they reach the land, they will eat their fill and be satisfied. This is that backwards, forwards things. But that's, that's not just a, um, a small detail in the story, that there was enough, there was leftover, and everybody was filled and satisfied. Now, if you've ever hosted a dinner party, you can find equations that tell you how much meat you need per guest. We don't throw... <laughs> That sounds more like Herod's banquet than, than what Jesus does here, is to say that I need to factor in so you don't want leftovers. <laughs> um, uh, David wants leftovers. But um, when you're doing it for a lot of people, you do worry about having too much leftovers, um, that, that things don't get eaten. I, I had like f- four pounds of wings left over from the film night, so guess what we're having for Super Bowl? Wings. Um, the, uh, I overshot. Um, But Jesus here is one who provides to what people need so that they eat their fill and are satisfied. Um, And in that way, this is this hope of what the land and where we will be, where we will be able to be filled and to be satisfied, that God won't act in this way. And what Kelly and I notice is that when we, um, we have uh, um, Latino neighbors uh, next to us, when they invite us over for their meals and festivals, it's an abundance in a way that puts us to shame in a lot of ways. Uh, and they feed us way too much. We often, it's Saturday, I think they feel bad for us. And they go, oh, you guys should come over and eat with us. And so we get there on time, which is a cultural difference that is very weird. And so they just keep giving us food. Uh, and then we had dinner ready, and so the dinner goes on to another day. But there's this, there's this notion of abundance in which their parties and relationships exist in that I think at least... Kelly and I could learn from um, is that they over shower and over prepare and over provide so that it's a meal where everybody will have their fill. It's for us to adopt this kingdom way of living ourselves, to be able to, to be waiters for God in a way in which people are filled and satisfied. Um, the number they had fed is 5,000, and then this brings us to the next story. Um, uh, this, this is a quote from Isaiah 25. I won't read it, but th- it's, again, backwards and forwards that at this mountain, God will heal these things and bring them. Uh, this is an early church image of Jesus walking on water. Almost all the artwork, particularly in the early church, but even now has Peter's, the scene that you get in Matthew's gospel where Peter is called out into the water too, which is not in Mark's gospel. So we'll leave that be, but this is... Um, 
uh, we'll stick with Mark's telling of the story. Immediately after this, the disciples and them get into a boat, and he goes up on a mountainside to pray, and he sends them out into the sea, and a big storm comes over them. And what happens is, is he, um, uh, shortly before the dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them, said, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. This is another one of the scenes that's loaded up with lots of imagery. But what happens here is that his intent to pass by them, this Greek word in the Greek Old Testament, um, which is the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but at this time they used a Greek Old Testament, um, the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, it's the same word that, that is used of when God intends to pass by the Israelites in Exodus 32 to 34 in those scenes, that, that God is, is, is passing by and revealing his name as one who is gracious and compassionate and all these things. And so Jesus, in this way, he is, he's on the water and he is intending to pass for them, before them, in a way that reveals his glory, obviously. He's walking on water. Um, and, and that is meant to be a thing for them, but their initial reaction is that they see a ghost. They still live in this world in which their minds have not been freed from the ways in which everything sort of needs to add up in the way that it is. And what Jesus said to them, take courage as I, do not be afraid, is this way in which he proclaims to them um, that it is I is, is, is like I am. Um, take courage, I am. Don't be afraid. He's adopting the divine name in, in a way in this passage. There, a lot of scholars will go with that. Some, some, some say it's possible, but maybe isn't it. But it's certainly like a very clear illusion that's all loaded up in this, this image that, that this is what's going on here. And, and, the, and the time at which he passes, it's just before the dawn. It's in the fourth watch. There's this way in which it's when it's darkest and the, the light is about to shine. That Christ intends to pass before them at the darkest right before the light shines. Um, so much going on in this passage. Um, but this take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. A message for the disciples, as we said as we started the story. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Again, we talked about as he starts as the shepherd in these passages too, the one who knows um, the interior of what is, what's really going on with our anxieties, with our frustrations, with our never-ending competitiveness, with whatever that is. It's one who sees that, and his word to it is, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. It's two things to sort of end with this story on. Is, is one is, I had this, this um, it's, when you think about this story, that Christ meets us in the storms of our lives seems, I, for me, for a long time, felt like such a campfire saying that, like, bordered on meaninglessness. Um, and yet, I've gotten older, <laughs> not necessarily wiser, but have reconsidered what does it mean that Christ meets us in the storms of our lives. Mark's message, the, the reason why this Mark's church is going through hard times. They're going through their own storm. 
And to have Christ meet them and for them to hear, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid, is much more than we can think it is. I think in, in, in my naiveness before, when I was younger, I'd say, oh yeah, this is, when you use it in the, Christ meets us in the storms of our lives, it's like, oh, you didn't get a parking spot, so this is, take, take courage. But the, the receptivity I had to that was so dumb um, because it wasn't fair to the experiences we actually have. The storms of our lives are much more than that. The conflict, the angst, the separations, the brokenness. For Christ to walk into that and say, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid, is, is the type of good news that I feel bad for where I was with it before. Um, and the freedom it offers us in this place. He gets into the boat and the storm settles. They're, they're still thinking about the loaves, um, and their hearts are hardened. There's an allusion to Pharaoh here, whose hearts was hardened. But the last thing um, I want to say, I said I had two left, so um, I'll, I'll stick to my promises, is that can God really spread a table in the wilderness? This is from the psalm that Park read to start the service this morning. Can God really meet us in the wilderness? in our passage on this new exodus, in this way in which we are going towards the future that God has to us, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? One of the th things Defiance Church is centered on is this table, too, is that, is that this table is one that represents the one that Christ meets us at, that Christ breaks his body for us and feeds us at, that his blood is poured out for us. And that's for us to await until he comes again. Until I said that, I think the first hundred Sundays I was here, I never really thought about what does it mean that it's until he comes again. The Common English Bible says it broadcasts the Lord's death until he comes again. But for us here, as the people of God gathered, we ask in, in frustration in the psalm, I think sometimes, is can God really prepare a table in the wilderness? But what is happening for us, and what is true is that God does prepare a table in the wilderness. He does meet us in the storms. And these are meant to be a blessing for us as we go as his people in the world. God takes the empty, broken, desolate places and makes a table for his people so that they can eat and be together as he equips them for the day in which he will come and set all things to right. Let us pray. And you have met us in your son, Jesus. We, too, are the people who come out to him and surround him. His heart goes out to us, and he instructs and teaches us. He's one who meets us as a shepherd, knowing us deeper than we know ourselves. He transforms a remote place into a place of grass in which a feast is had and we are invited to eat until our fill. God, too, you meet us in the storms of our lives the way you meet the disciples. 
It's for us to take into our hearts. Take courage. I am, it is I. Do not be afraid. You've rescued us from Herod's table. May you free our hearts to live in the abundance of grace and love and mercy, multiplying in the world and the ways in which you have called us.